Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. Welcome to Top Quartile. Today I've got Jeff on the show, and Jeff's going to tell about background a little bit. So Jeff, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. As we get started, give everybody a flavor. What's your background? What are you doing now at Upstart? And set the context. I have a computer systems engineering degree from Stanford. So it's kind of like half computer science, half electrical engineering, all pain. And then I promptly went into the business side of technology, first at IBM, where I was selling, if you can believe it or not, something roughly equivalent to a mainframe computer. And from there, I hopped to Google, where I was just in time to be the kind of the first business side hire on what is now Google Cloud, back when that was a concept was there for about six years, uh, launching what's now Google Workspace and Google Cloud and Chromebooks and all that kind of stuff. And then just over a decade ago, I can't really believe it's that long, I joined uh, who was the president of Google Enterprise at the time, Dave Girard, to found Upstart. And I really work on strategic partnerships. You know, it's been interesting to see a startup go from five people to sizes at today, over 1,500 people and that. I've I've worn a lot of hats over that time, but generally kind of strategic relationships and partnerships are my primary focus. Cool. And for folks who may not be familiar with Upstart, what do you guys do? Yeah. It's sometimes a complicated question. Uh, We're really uh, an AI lending marketplace is how we typically describe ourselves. And we work with credit unions and banks. And I think it's easier to think of us providing them three sets of core services. We're kind of best known for one, but really the three are digital originations platform for unsecured loans and automobile loans today, both refi and increasingly purchase automobile loans. But on top of the digital experience, I think we're probably best known for is the use of artificial intelligence and the assessment of credit risk. So all of our lenders specify credit policies and pricing strategies, but we have models that are helping predict the risk of any given loan to any given individual so those lenders can price them accurately. And then finally, one of the reasons we call it a marketplace is we do have a lot of consumers who come to upstart.com looking for these loans. On the auto side, we have a network of dealers we work with where we're powering their retail and lending experiences. And so we connect those consumers who are looking for lending products with the bank and credit union partners we have who are looking for new customers for growth in their loan portfolio. So it's kind of a number of different ways that we operate, but those are the primary things we really do for folks. Awesome. That makes the conversation we're going to have later very rich indeed. And so for folks who may not know you well, what's maybe one fascinating fact that even people who know you well may not know? Oh, now you've raised the bar. Well, we were just joking that uh, I spent a couple of years in Georgia where you spent a weekend and, and lived, Dan, but I actually spent three years living in Europe as a kid in Brussels, which was, it's a fascinating experience. You know, I was there in the 90s. I was there in the late 80s, early 90s for the fall of the Berlin Wall. So we actually drove a car down to Berlin and I I have a chunk of the Berlin Wall that I took out with a sledgehammer myself. Awesome. People probably don't know that. That's I said. I made a paperweights out of them. I think I need a little help with the sledgehammer because I was under the age of 10, so I didn't, I didn't <laughs> wield it as well as I could. And my sister's a picture of my sister and I hanging in a hole in the Berlin Wall. And we were chased back because uh, Germany wasn't integrated. The wall was falling, but you couldn't actually cross through it. So we crossed over into the other side into East Germany. And they chased us right back through the gate. Army guys, that's something most people don't know about me. But I keep that around as a reminder of the importance of a certain values. Man, what an awesome story. Talk about being where, where history's made. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really fun because both my grandfathers fought in World War II. And we were able to bring one of them with us to the wall. And he, and he uh, got to take a sledgehammer to it and knock it down. He was a... Uh, on a carrier in the South Pacific, so or uh, on a destroyer. Yeah, that was it was pretty cool to get to share that moment of history with them. It was a pretty crazy thing to say. I don't think you appreciate it as a kid, but some of those experiences, maybe it's for the parents, uh, the kids do over time grow to appreciate and understand the import of some of the things they witness, even if the moment they go, I don't know, Dad, why are we in the car for three hours driving this place and it's just a wall? Like, I don't get it, but I get it now. Yeah, for sure. 
you talked about what Upstart does. What's growth been like? Well, growth's been, I mean, really good. You can look at our, we, we went public in December 2020, so you can look at our, our quarterly <laughs> reports. I'd say our, our growth is often, you know, one of the, the, the core insights we had when we founded the company was that many more consumers are worthy of credit than are generally understood to be so. And so we started building models to understand, you know, in that near prime pool or like who are the really good borrowers and can we find more and more of them? Because even in a subprime pool, maybe 80% of the borrowers are going to pay you back. So if you can identify those 80%, you can serve a lot of people. And our growth often is, is driven by improvements in our model where we can go and say, hey, we really understand consumers now. We can approve more. Our marketing channels are more effective. That drives things. So you, you see this kind of improvements in model really walking, not in lockstep, but very tightly correlated to growth. And we continue investing heavily in there. So growth has been good. That's awesome. And then I guess it helps with thin files too. Helps a lot with thin files. I mean, we've for a long time allowed borrowers who don't generate a credit score to, to you know, I will say, now, of course, I got to put the caveat, which is like a low credit score or a thin file, no credit score are less likely to be approved. The reality is a credit file has hundreds of pieces of information about a consumer's credit history, their payment, their past. And many of them are highly predictive. And it, when you reduce it down to a credit score, you lose a lot of the richness of that data. And it turns out when you use sophisticated models that understand a specific lending product you're evaluating and look at all those data points, you can really find a lot of borrowers who are credit worthy and identify them. And so it helps a lot with thin files, young consumers, right, who just haven't had, I often say you, you kind of come out with an assumed guilty until proven innocent. I mean, if you've never paid back credit, people go, well, I can't lend you, you've never paid anybody back. And I go, well, it's because nobody's ever lent to me. Like, I, you know, like, how do you validate that? And that was total chicken and egg problem. And that was one of the things that really brought us into the space was the realization that at places like Google, we were hiring people in their early 20s and able to find people who would be productive, who would be successful and ineffective in their jobs. And yet those same people couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get credit. We, well, we got to be able to use some of the same things we're looking at over here to hire people to be able to look over here. And, you know, if Google would hire you, you're probably a pretty good credit risk. And so that was kind of one of the core first moments where we went, hey, there's got to be a way to bridge this gap and use some of these techniques and some of this data to understand credit worthiness in a deeper way. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, I was... I guess I was fortunate that my parents put me on one of their credit vehicles, and I don't even remember. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was a car loan or a credit card or something. When I was in probably high school, unlike many, I came out of college with a credit history, and not everybody has that experience. It's one of those ways that credit is, in many ways, inherited, right? Like we don't think of it that way, but so much of your behaviors of your parents and their decisions to get you credit early on. That's a behavior of a well-informed consumer who's done well, that's helping their kid. And that's kind of an inherited credit past. If you think about what credit worthiness is supposed to be, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that is often how, at least in the early stages, the credit system does work in practice. Yeah. And that's one path and not everybody has access to that path. That's right. Well, cool. And so we're sitting here, that's the history. How are the change in the economy and interest rates changing what you're doing? Or maybe not. Maybe it's a validation of it. I don't know. It's been a really interesting last couple of years, <laughs> I think, for everybody. One of the things, when you, when you use artificial intelligence or machine learning or kind of new approaches generally to assess creditworthiness, one of the big questions people ask is what happens during a recession? Like, because you, you can prove the model's working well in good times. What happens when it gets worse? And, you know, the beginning of COVID looked like that was going to be the, the real test. Unemployment was skyrocketing. Everybody was freaking out about performance of credit. And then, of course, the government stepped in and we saw strong stimulus. And it's actually been the some of the most positive credit environment in history the last couple of years because defaults have been well, well below what anyone, including us, would have expected, largely based on government stimulus. We did see, I think, some, some evidence of what would happen in our portfolios, which is like utilization of hardship or forbearance programs was pretty heavy during COVID. And if you viewed those as somewhat akin to what losses might have looked like had the government not stepped in, 
we saw very strong performance of our model at separating risk during that stress period. So borrowers we consider to be less risky, we're using hardship programs less, ignoring credit scores, and then borrowers we consider to be more risky. Credit scores were a relatively poor predictor of this, but our risk scoring was a much better predictor of need for a hardship. Now, of course, those didn't turn into realized losses, primarily through government stimulus. And I think now we're starting to see the pullback of that stimulus. I'll say something like a reversion to pre-COVID, pre-stimulus uh, level of losses, right? So if they were artificially deflated losses, artificially better credit environment because of the stimulus, I think that's going away and, you know, it'll be a little bit, at least more normal, if not a little bit rockier road ahead. So we'll see what that bears. But, you know, generally there's, I think of it as impact on the capital markets where people definitely get nervous banks investors who might hold these loans are nervous about what the future looks like. And that, that impacts capital in our environment. And, and then you have borrowers, right? Who say, do, I, do I, you know, if rates are going up, do I, do, I, do I still want the loan? And, you know, most personal loans are used to refinance credit cards and most credit cards are floating rate. So even while our cost of funds going up, the borrower's alternative or current debt is usually going up in price too. So generally we can still keep somewhat similar margins to what we had in terms of ability to lower rates for the consumer. What do you see it impacting demand? Would you focus on fixed term, fixed rate? Is that helping demand, I would think? You know, it's. I think it's a little too early to tell. I mean, there's so much noise in the system in terms of different sources of traffic and performance. But I generally think when costs go up, there's parts of our portfolio that are, I'm taking a vacation, I'm buying new furniture, I'm having a wet day, I'm borrowing money for, I think there's some going to be some pullback in demand on some of those. People want things are more expensive. Right. Like naturally, I, I think of at the end of the day, laws of supply and demand, right? Like when the cost of a good goes up, generally the demand for the good goes down. That's not shocking. Like I said, if you think of a large portion of what we do is credit card refinancing for the personal loan side and most of those credit cards being at floating rate, there's a good argument that there's some sustainability to demand as the cost of their current debt increases the desire to refinance it and consolidate that debt probably maintains or maybe even increases. So I think we have to see what happens is, I mean, somebody asked me the other day, like, what's that, what happens in a rising interest rate environment? And I go, we haven't seen one for quite a while. That's right. Right. Uh, and yeah. so it's, you know, we're all, we're all learning a little bit as we go because we don't have lots of great historical data points to tell us what will happen to these kinds of products in this kind of credit environment. Yeah. I mean, outside, outside of a little blip in 2016, 17-ish that ended up not lasting very long. You really have to go back to post-financial crisis or you know early 2000s. Yeah, you do. And if you think back that far, like unsecured loans weren't of this type, weren't really a thing that was done at any scale. So you get down to really sparse data points. Maybe you're looking at credit cards, but that's a pretty different dynamic. You know, you get to data points where you're saying, hey, I, it's really hard for me to, to make a strong prediction because the data is not that well aligned with what we're in today and the products we're talking about. So speaking of something else that's different, what do you see happening in the channel front? So you talked about the marketplace, a big chunk of your business is coming in the marketplace and as a referral to your clients. To our credit union and bank partners, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so when you think about your partners, the community banks and credit unions you partner with, how do you think about their branches as a channel? Yeah, well, I think their branches, I think, are going to be a pretty good channel, or at least, and also, by the way, just their relationships, right? Like, I think every credit union and bank I talk to is in the process of, you know, digital transformation is one of the key buzzwords that we hear. But I certainly think they're trying to evaluate their distribution strategies, their customer outreach strategies beyond just the branch. For so long, we've been centered around customer comes into the branch. We talk to them, we find out their needs, we solve those needs. And increasingly, consumers aren't coming into the branch. I mean, this happened during COVID, but I think it represents a pretty solid shift that for a lot of transactions, I mean, grandma and grandpa were mobile depositing checks and they go, hey, this is pretty good. I don't want to come into the branch anymore to do this. And so I think every bank that I talk to is trying to figure out how do I 
now communicate with that customer, understand their needs, offer them good advice, find the right products in a way that's not reliant on the branch, right? And so we certainly view all of our partners' customer bases as a great way for them to reach out to. I will say most of them are still trying to figure out in a non-branch world, how do I do that? What's the most efficacious way? What are the channels? What's the messaging? How do I layer different products together in a digital way? How do I target the next best product? All that is evolving. So we work with all of our partners to figure out how do we reach your customer base with these offers and this experience, as well as bringing new customers to the institution. So it's something we look at carefully, but it's something I'll say is a little more nascent for many of our partners because they're not used to it. And it's, it's not something they've got a, a strong, a muscle built around yet. That's how we even got connected for this podcast. If I recall is because we spend a lot of time with community banks and credit unions on their kind of full life cycle, multi-product category. And so as you know, as we're working with clients to promote a variety of loans to their customers, in some cases, prospects. We had mutual clients that said, hey, I have this upstart program that is pretty cool. I want to get the word out to my new customers or cross-sell. And so- I was going to say, it's a product that the, the unsecured in particular, it's one of the fastest growing products in the market. And it's one that has been dominated by non-bank lenders, right? So we typically work in a marketplace model where we connect our borrowers with a bank or credit union. But there's lots of fintech lenders who operate as the primary brand to their consumers, and, and they're doing the majority of these loans. And so I think a lot of credit unions and banks I talk to are saying, hey, I'm seeing the deposits into my, my depository accounts. So they're not my loans. And I need to be in that game and, and offering these services because it is a real value add, I think, to consumers. You think about kind of your product menu and you focus on unsecured and auto how often do you see maybe someone coming in thinking they need an unsecured loan, but then realizing they have equity in their car that may be a better option? You know, them starting with one idea and then maybe ending up with a different product than they even originally came in for. Very little. I mean, most of our auto loans are, are just pure refi, not really the kind of the cash out kind of thing. And then a lot, increasingly, we're focused on the auto purchase too with our dealer network and our auto retail software. So it, it is something, one of the visions we have for what should really happen is that really collateralized loans are just a way to lower the interest rate. You start with an unsecured and if you have recourse to a home or, I mean, it's kind of something you could add or remove to a credit product pretty easily. We're, we're not there for sure in the way we deliver, but I think that concept that, hey, this is something you ought to be able to easily attach. And by the way, we see the opposite, which is, you know, we see a lot of home improvement use cases on personal loans where you traditionally would have thought of that as a HELOC or less home equity loan, like installment loans is less of a thing than HELOCs. And people just go, hey, the process is so hard. The appraisals take forever. I'm willing to pay a little bit more because we have, on top of doing underwriting with AI, we do a lot of the, what we might call verification, ID, fraud, income verification. It's so that means that, you know, about 70% of the borrowers have a no manual review process and complete in less than half an hour. And so we find a lot of borrowers come through going half hour process with money the next morning is worth a little bit higher rate than what I might've gotten on a HELOC that takes 30, 60, 90 days in many cases, particularly with the shortage of appraisers we have now. So we're actually seeing a little bit of the opposite. We see some auto purchases on unsecured, particularly for peer-to-peer purchase or things you go, hey, it's just not worth the hassle to get the lien or to, to, to do the process. If I can just get the money, it's a little bit more expensive, but like my time is worth the difference for many people. Well, and I guess that makes sense too. You know, if you're doing a, a light home improvement, you know, maybe it's a $5,000 or $10,000 home improvement. Yeah. Like, okay. To your point, it's. I'm putting a new HVAC in. It's going to cost me a couple thousand. Like, do I want to go through a 90 day? Yeah. Well, that, in that case, like my air conditioner is broken. I want it today. <laughs> You know, yeah, I don't want to wait for the 90 days to go get my, my HELOC <laughs> process done to get it. Like, yeah, I had that where my AC kept blowing fuses about every three days, two summers ago. 
when I was running the Home Depot, getting 25 fuses, throwing them up there every three days. Every time I broke 100, man, it blew out. Oh, man. I, went, I need to get a new HVAC. And I, I wasn't willing to wait very long. I said, I just need, like, how fast can you put something in my house that'll keep it cool? So I think there is a lot of that. I also think part of what we see in this trend, you know, as you see HELOC balances declining for, for many years now, and you see the rise of BNPL, I, one of the threads I take away from that is the consumer's desire to have installment type credit versus revolving type credit. And when I talk to consumers, what I hear is a skepticism of debt in general and a desire to understand the cost and duration of any debt. So if I'm choosing to take on debt to pay for the HVAC, I want to know how much I have to pay for how long, what it's going to cost me in total to get out. And revolving vehicles don't really do that very well, right? It's confusing for the consumer. Credit card comes with you know minimum payment. It's like $35. And you go, well, how long does it take to pay off my credit card if I do that? And the answer is like long time, forever. Uh, and so I think consumers are getting savvier. They're getting more skeptical of over leveraging. We'll see if that maintains post-COVID, but certainly we saw that during COVID. And they're saying, hey, I want to understand the terms, the full terms of the, when I'm borrowing, I want to borrow on purpose uh, and with intentionality behind the kind of borrowing. And so I think that's just a kind of general shift towards more installment type products where the total cost is known up front, right? The monthly payment is known. And I, I think there's a there's just a secular shift driving that way where consumers want that kind of clarity when they're making that decision. Well, and going back to your HVAC example, right? I mean, that thing may not have a 30-year life. Yeah, you don't you, you don't want it on a 30-year. Right, or, or even a 10 or 15. It, you may choose to look at a six-month or a 12-month or 24. What's it going to cost? What's the payment? We find borrowers are very payment sensitive, often more so than interest rate sensitive. But they want to like, what's the total cost? Like, what am I paying in interest over the life of the loan? That's a really hard question to answer on a revolving product. And on an installment product, you can look at your answers and, and look and say, hey, I'm willing to pay this much more to have a lower cash flow burden or whatever. You can make an informed decision in a way that I think is hard. And I think consumers like that. I think there's a push, particularly among younger consumers, to that kind of you know, transparency and clarity. Well, yeah. And to that point, if I'm paying something off in five years versus a 15-year second mortgage, I'm going to pay less in interest over that five years. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Even if the rate's higher. And it's a little bit of enforced budgeting, right? Yeah, exactly. When, when it's on the revolving, oh, I made the minimum this month. It's fine. I need to do something else. And on the installment, you're committing yourself to a more disciplined approach to paying down that debt. And I think people want that. Like we all, well, I needed the gym buddy when I was growing up to make sure I got my butt to the gym. My buddy was the guy that, you know, said, well, I can't skip today. He's like, Dave's waiting for me. So I feel like there's a little bit of that with the installment loan for people saying it's going to enforce discipline is, is not a bad thing. You know, we're talking about sort of how it's changed with buy, buy now, pay later. What are some of the other sort of upcoming changes that you see in consumer behavior or technology or whatever? Probably the thing I hear most from the banks, because there's this focus on digitization. And I'll say two things about digitization that I think are really important trends that credit unions and banks need to get ahead of. One is pretty much anything that is transactional, my sense is consumers don't want to, by and large, talk to somebody about. They want to be able to transact without. So I've been in processes now like, well, you know, now I'll talk to the agent. I'm like, I don't want to talk to the agent to cash my check, to check my balance. I want to just do those things without human intervention. On the flip side, we still really want advice. And most consumers still feel like they don't have a trusted partner to turn to for financial advice, particularly younger consumers. There have been a number of surveys on this. And so I think that's a huge opportunity for banks and credit unions to lean into the, how do I turn my staff that used to often be doing administrative processing of paperwork, taking payments, and turn them into advisors? Because people want that. When they're saying, what's the 15-year or the 30-year or what's this arm? Is that the right product for me? How do I think about a HELOC versus an installment loan? they want that help. And then often they go, hey, now that you've helped me make the choice, leave me alone to finish the process. <laughs> like I, I'll fill out the paperwork on my own, 
but I need that advice. So that's to me a huge opportunity for us to shift how we think about what we're doing from kind of the transactional nature to that more advisory role for the staff, for banks and credit unions. And the second thing I see in digitization is the focus on digitization is a, like the digital is the goal. And I think digital is the tool and a better process has to be the goal. Now I was talking to somebody recently and they talked about, hey, when we used to do a car loan, we had a clipboard and we went around and we like, you know, walked around the car. And when I bet the digital process is like a digital checkboxes, you know, like an iPad instead of a clipboard, but the consumer still had to drive to the branch and wait for the person. And, and so we see this so much where you digitize a legacy process as opposed to saying, what's the better process for my customer that's possible because of the digital technologies? That's the other thing where I see this trend where now every bank has more competition. People are, can shop rates really easily. Sites like Credit Karma or Lending Tree have made it accessible. And there are many national brands. So you're not just competing with the branches down the street. You're competing with Goldman Sachs and Marcus. You're competing with large national players who are in these areas. And if you don't have a really quality digital experience, not just digital, but a well-optimized experience that's focused on the consumer as opposed to the old process and how you're used to doing things, then it's going to be really hard to compete. And I think that's a trap for many as we move to digital is to just take the thing I have. HELOC's probably a great example where we just go, hey, we're going to like take the paper form, intake it in digital, and then we're going to go through the same appraisal process, the same underwriting process. It's going to still take 60 days. And I go, well, I don't want to do 60 days, right? I want to do faster. And Maybe there's real reasons that that's true, but I think too often we think about taking our current thing and digitizing it as opposed to thinking about what does the customer need and how do we use digital technologies to solve that problem, to reinvent that process in a better way. And that's going to be ultimately what I think the winners have to find a way to do, right? They've got to find a way to make a better experience for the customer. That is really well said. I heard a smart guy named Graham Hill mentioned a number of years ago. He said, jobs rarely change but the tools we use to accomplish those jobs have been changing all the time. And I thought that's a way of saying what what you just articulated well as well. And so like a nail gun is a great example, right? Somebody didn't create a mechanical device that literally pounds a claw hammer. They thought about how do I get this nail into the board faster? A nail gun doesn't look anything like a hammer, but it accomplishes that job faster. And so I think your advice about digitization, whether or not it's, and it's the the whole experience, right? It's not necessarily that specific task. That's right. It, it is the whole experience. And I think that's, if you talk about another area that banks, credit unions really have to work hard on. And I think this is an area that is underinvested because, you know, Silicon Valley is kind of, I think, famous for shiny, ob- what I call shiny object syndrome, wanting the newest, sexiest, coolest thing. And in the banking world, that is consumer facing experiences, my mobile app, my whatever. But so much of providing the great customer experience is actually the infrastructure connecting the system. I went through a digital mortgage with one of the top providers in a big bank and great, you know, like first step, create a new login. I've been a customer for 20 years. Right, right. Create a new login. Tell me the address. What's a refi of a mortgage from the same place you sent my statements for 20 years? Please upload 90 days of bank statements. And I go, it's your bank. (laughs) Near my bank. So like that layer of, can I connect the data sources so that I can provide quality of experience? That mortgage should have been a like credit pool originate done. Like there should have been almost no process, right? Because I've been a customer forever. I've got great credit. You know, like it, it was fine. But that wasn't the process they built because they just took the old process 
and made it digital. And you've got to really think about that experience, that customer, and that integration layer. Like, did you integrate the authentication? Did you transfer, at least pre-populate my name and address and date of birth? That would have been easy and would have showed me that we had a relationship. It would have made the process simpler for me. But that didn't happen. And I think too often, we all do that. One of the other things we say in Silicon Valley is don't ship your org chart. Too often, our digital efforts, like what you see there is the org chart. Like, well, that this was the mortgage guy and he doesn't control these other systems. So he shipped a product that was optimized for that business versus taking the customer's point of view and saying, how do I layer technology between all these disparate systems to provide the best experience. That's harder. And it's not as sexy because it's not in a mobile app you can take into the boardroom. But I think it's really important if you want to provide the best experience that you're investing in that. What I kind of call the data infrastructure, that the plumbing, if you will, the plumbing and electrical of your house. You can have the nicest room ever, but if you don't have the plumbing and electrical connected, it doesn't work that well. And that's ultimately what I think we can do when we focus on a digital experience, but not the interconnectivity of data to provide that consumer experience that's really high quality. Yeah. And then go back to something you said about the advisor. Okay. We know that people get frustrated or confused about options. And so giving that advisor the same tools that the customer sees so that for them to be able to provide effective advice. Oh, I see where you were stuck. Because that's actually one of the things that we see as we work with community banks and credit unions is these people are, are embedded in the community. People care about their neighborhoods. There's a sense of trust. And so they want to come in and see Sam or Ruth or, you know, whoever at the local branch, sometimes when they're thinking about options, it's a visit and they may end up doing the thing on the website, but they're coming in for that advice. And so that's right. And the other thing that was really interesting when bankers were telling me about their experience shifting this direction to taking their is not only was it a better experience for customers, they said, I'm happy to transact at home or upload documentation. I don't need to come back and see Ruth. But not only were the customer happier having good advice, Ruth was happier because the job of providing advice and really understanding your customers is more rewarding than the more traditional job of like processing deposits or, you know, those roles were more exciting and rewarding for the employees as well when they were able to move to that true advisory role and understanding a customer situation one of the customers we worked with on deploying personal loans in their branch. One of the primary data problems they wanted to solve was being able to credit an online application to a loan officer or a branch that had started the process. Even though the person originated digitally in the end, they wanted to be able to say, hey, there was a touch point here and that loan was really driven by this activity in this branch by this person for compensation purposes and for tracking purposes. But it's easy to think, you know, now it's digital, the branches aren't doing anything. And that wasn't true. The branches were driving the demand even though the demand was being fulfilled digitally and figuring out how to make sure you're tracking that and able to understand that that's happening and the value that's being provided in those branches or in those call centers one-on-one is really important. So as we wrap up, maybe go back in time to your younger self. You've had a, a long, very interesting career. If you could sit down, maybe not going back to the Berlin Wall, but maybe yourself graduating with that computer science degree, any advice you would give to your younger self based on what you know now? I think the advice I always have would have for me, although I, you know, I'm pretty happy with where I've gotten, so I don't want to go back and like screw up the path I took. I think a lot of lessons learned along the way. But my advice is always the risky thing is never as risky as you think. So, you know, I was at IBM and going to go to Google at this newfangled thing that wasn't really a thing yet in the enterprise team. Like it felt like, am I, am I throwing away the good thing for the risky thing? And the same thing was kind of the, your first feeling when I decided to leave Google and join Upstart. I'm doing something stupid here. And, you know, The moment of greatest fear was right before you made the decision. And as soon as I made the decision and left, it never felt as risky. It never felt as scary as I thought it would. And I feel like a lot of great career progression comes from those risks you take. And those risks feel like bigger risks in your head when you're making them than they really are. You know, just be bold, take the risks and stretch for the things. Every great job I've had has always felt a little bit beyond my capacity in some way where you kind of went, 
I feel like I can figure this one out, but I don't know the answer to the problem that you have. But I feel like if I work really hard and think about it, I could find it. And sometimes I'm saying, I can't believe you're letting me do it. Like, okay, being willing to take that risk and reach for that thing that feels a little beyond your capacity to ask for the project or to take the promotion that just feels a little bit like, I'm not quite sure I'm ready. Let me tell you, nobody's quite sure that they're ready. And they're taking the leap anyway. And that's where your greatest growth happens is when you're a little outside your comfort zone. And that comfort zone is your capacity is a little broader than you think. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson is just take the risks, reach for the things and be willing to take some, some opportunities that feel like a little bit of a stretch because that's where your greatest growth and the greatest opportunities really lie. Well, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. It's hard to believe our time's already up. Flown by. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, it's good conversations go fast. So I appreciate you making it a fun one, Dan. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.